he he asked me how I liked it. I said, it's astonishing. It's a fabulous dish. And I said, what do you think of it? He says, I don't know. I've never tasted it. And I said, what? And he said, well, you don't have to stick your hand in fire to know it's hot. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here, and so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, friends? Welcome back for another episode of Decoding Cocktails. I am Chris LeBeau, and uh, today I am very excited, but also feel very grateful that I can bring to you this conversation I had with chef and author Michael Ruhlman. Michael is the author of nine nonfiction books, eight cookbooks of his own, and another thing that I think is important is uh, he is the co-author of 10 other cookbooks and he has been tapped for this by people like chef jean georges uh eric repair and multiple times he's developed a great relationship with chef thomas keller of the french laundry and these are chefs who are just at a level where they're going to have access to whoever they want and the fact that they have chosen michael to help them tell their story speaks to his ability to really get to the essence of something. Uh, he was also uh, a good friend and uh, several times on the TV shows uh, with uh, Anthony Bourdain and so uh, a, great, uh, a late great muse for, for many of us. But what brought Michael and I together is not too long into lockdown, if my memory serves me correctly, as I was digging more into the cocktail thing, you know, there are so many analogies at times between cocktails and the culinary world. And I was um, very fascinated by several, several of the things Michael was talking about. He was talking about, uh, he has a, a book called 20, which ex explores technique, um, the 20 techniques you should know, as well as his book Ratio, which explores things like breads and pastas, how really at the end of the day, if you want to make your own, they are a game of ratios. And I happened to see as I was reading these that Michael was doing a lot of experimentation with cocktails. And so I was like, oh my gosh, like... I started threading the needle for myself and I was like, hey, are there like books you highly recommend that people should get? And Michael, delicately or not, was like, well, there are some good ones out there, but there's not one I heartily recommend and that's why I'm writing one. So uh, here we are today to talk about the book of cocktail ratios, the surprising simplicity of classic cocktails. So in this book, Michael lays out seven of his own books uh, families for cocktails and not only do I think he does a great job of breaking them down but importantly and this is a distinction that is only held by a few books in my opinion is most of these the books you can buy are written by a bartender let's say and it's really written for other bartenders and I mean that in the sense that so often the builds are extremely complex. The processes are very labor-intensive in some of the recipes, and that is not what this book is about. This book is about 
for you, the home bartender, and designed to not have you constantly running to the liquor store. It wants you to understand the importance of technique and these ratios, but it's not going to call on you to make things that are so fringe that you're going to end up with lots of bottles that you're never going to end up using. In fact, Michael outlines just a couple of things beyond basic spirits he thinks you should have on hand. Uh, It was also fun to have Michael, because egg whites or eggs can play such a prominent role, Uh, Michael has written an entire book on the egg, and so we got into that a little bit, talks quite a bit about batching for when you're hosting or when you want to take drinks on the road with you to a friend's house. Uh, Another thing I'm going to be interested to experiment with, so if you're not new here, uh, you've heard me harp on vermouth too many times, and vermouth, as we've discussed too many times, is not shelf-stable once you open it. But Michael says that uh, for his wife's birthday, he made a large batch of Negronis, and when they weren't all used, he put them in the refrigerator and found that for the next couple of months, he was able to continue enjoying those. And um, while some people out there might balk at this or or kind of, um, you know, some mixologists might say that, that just won't work. You know, I have to imagine Michael has a pretty refined palate. That doesn't mean his word is law, but that's interesting for me to think about, okay, like, what does that mean when we end up fortifying that, that ver- the vermouth uh, in terms of that being able to hang on a little longer? So that's pretty cool. Uh, so anyways, uh, I think the book is, would be very worth your time. Uh, there'll, be, of course, be a link to it. Uh, you can find Michael at Ruhlman, R-U-H-L-M-A-N dot com, and uh, that is also his Instagram handle. Um, he, uh, Michael was honestly a joy to chat with. We had a lot of fun. And um, so anyways, I think you'll enjoy this conversation with him. You know, we, you just asked me about, you know, kind of my initial cocktail moment in the book. You talk about, Hey, first sip of your martini at age eight, you know, and obviously your reaction, <laughs> like your reaction, like many of us was obviously like uh, not love at first taste. Uh, you are now, obviously, as you say, uh, and are not shy about like you love martinis. Now, is there a time, is there a cocktail you remember or a cocktail experience when you were an adult, a teen? Is there a moment you remember beginning to feel captivated by cocktails yourself? Um, I, I only f- realized this while you had t- were talking about yours, and I'd never really acknowledged it before. Um, yes, I'd had that sip of my um, father's martini at age eight, on our way to pick up the babysitter. So we're dry, he was driving in our 1972 Mustang. Um, and it was revolting. And we no longer, of course, drink in the car. It was gone in my dad's. He was an ad man who looked very much like John Hamm, actually. <laughs> um, there was a moment when I tasted, I would always taste, I, you know, I love tasting, you know, I'm a, I, I love to cook and I write about cooking and food and drink. Um, I would always taste stuff. And he had a, um, and after dinner drink a little tiny cordial glass of uh, drambui and I tasted a little he said would you like a sip I said sure I, I think it was probably six or seven um, and the way this liqueur this brandy based liqueur bloomed on, on my tongue 
and spread out through my mouth. I was astonished. I was absolutely astonished. I thought this was amazing. Wow. What flavor, what, what it did in your mouth was extraordinary. It was like an explosion in my mouth, a happy explosion. And I, and so I, I always, so from that year on, I would get, I was allowed to have a thimble full of drambouille and I would probably sip it for an hour because I'd have to uh, taste and then let the flavor go away. So it would have that same impact, um, that bloom in your mouth. And that's when I realized, I guess, the power of spirits and being from a very waspy family, a very big drinking family. Um, my grandma Rose looked at me and said, my dad's mother and said, ah, you're going to be a scotch drinker. And she said it with pride. I thought, oh, OK, I'm going to be a scotch drinker. I'm I'm not a scotch drinker. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to say grandma Rose. Um, but there was that. So those two those two moments, one, the sort of absolutely appalled taste of this medicinal, nasty martini um, out of a plastic cup from a cup holder uh, in the console of the car <laughs> and the thimble full of drambouille on Christmas. Um, then I would fast forward to my uh, 30s or 40s um, when I I was visiting my mom in West Palm Beach where she'd been, been living for many years. My parents divorced uh, uh, amicably. And I was looking, I, I thought, I, you know, I, how about a dad? I'd like, I'd like, I want a rum drink. So I kind of, I don't know what, how I looked for it, but I, I found a Hemingway rum drink. And then I looked at daiquiris and I thought, oh, daiquiris aren't slushy. They're, um, it's, it's, it's simple syrup and lime juice and rum. And so I made one. I made some simple syrup. I, you know, I microwaved some water with sugar in the microwave and, um, and when it was cool, I, I made a drink with lime, fresh lime juice and rum. And it was fabulous. I thought, oh, my God. So this is what a daiquiri is. And if I if this is what a daiquiri is, what are all those other drinks? Um, and that was a moment. I can't remember when it was, but it must have been in the 90s. Like right about when I started writing about food and cooking. So I was curious about that kind of thing. And I'd been interested in ratios and how things came together and recipes and what mattered and what didn't. But I was kind of astonished that I never, here's this age old drink and I didn't really know what it was. And then I thought, what more don't I know? I I love that it was the daiquiri too, because in many of the classes I teach, I often lead with the daiquiri because for a lot of people, still the uninitiated out there are those people who have, they've had an old fashioned or whatever, most people like they still think, you know, you know, red drink when they hear daiquiri. And there's that moment to watch great rum, fresh lime, that little sweetness hit people. Mm -hmm. And it's just it it's 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 pleasurable for me to see them often take it in, in in a great way and to ask like, oh, like, because I feel like rum is that category that still has not really had the same whiskey tequila you know moment of like people gin moment of people looking at him like oh this is a dignified category okay got it so uh mm -hmm. to the it's um well oh, since we're talking about daiquiri i have to ask you are you a traditional daiquiri drinker using a lime cordial um well i guess i'm thinking about the gimlet 
No, daiquiri is just lime and simple syrup. Um, but since I'm, I am curious, you go for, uh, and I'm looking at lime sours, basically. Yep. Um, do you go for a lime cordial in your gimlet, or do you like a fresh lime gimlet? So uh, to the uh, decoding cocktails content feed coming up very soon, I'm actually getting ready to produce a lime cordial video. So the answer is because I often have citrus laying around, I will often squeeze a la minute if I'm just making a cocktail at home. But at times when my citrus is going bad on me, I will mm -hmm. turn around and create a cordial. And so I feel like my go-to reach is a fresh lime juice um, gimlet if I was going to have one. But would I very much welcome the lime cordial? Absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, Jeff's Jeff, Jeffrey Morgenthaler's uh, recipe that you have in the book is very much, you know, his process is what I follow for it. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so. Uh, a good one. Yep, it is. It is. So I know you also wrote in the book that, uh, so one, you obviously, you know, long culinary history. You said that during, I think, I forget if it was during the pandemic itself or not, that you had noticed uh, a cop, uh, copy infringing uh, audiobook online and you pinged your editor about it. Like, hey, like, let's take this down. And your editor said to you, um, hey, are you working on anything? And you talked about this ratio book. So is there a moment you remember the ratios of cocktails beginning to hit you? Was it a slow trickle? Because obviously you've thought about ratios very intensively mm -hmm. since writing your book. But is there a moment when that first occurred to you that you can recall? Or how did how did the, the book process begin to build for you? Uh, it happened because of the Friday Cocktail Hour Instagrams okay. uh, and videos that we would do where I'd make a new cocktail every week. And because I was making, you know, a cocktail every week, a different cocktail every week, I was saying, God, these are so similar. This is just the cocktail we did a couple of weeks ago, only swip, swapping out, you know, whiskey for the gin. Um, and <clears throat> so there was, there was that, the recognizing the interconnectedness of all the cocktails. Um, there was, of course, my just innate desire to pare down and simplify recipes to their essence um which is what the book ratio the original book ratio was uh and then there were all the people who <laughs> commenters on the instagram saying when's the book coming out and my wife's saying you got to write a book about this and i thought well what what is that book it's not just the friday cocktail hour with lots of recipes what is that book and then i thought about well they're all related and so many people don't know that and so let's explore this in a book and cocktails unlike bread uh, unlike you know pancakes um uh, which takes some sort of finesse and some sort of technique cocktails are all about the ratio cocktails are ratios period they are pure ratios and so i thought here's the book so i wrote the proposal sent it to my editor um at abrams and he passed on it. He didn't, he didn't like it. Didn't think it was, he talked to colleagues, didn't like it. Talked to some other editors that I'd worked with before. Um, and nobody wanted it. You know, frankly, it's hard to be an older white guy in publishing these days. Um, mm. agent, I've got an agent friend and she called me and says, I actually sold a book by a white guy, um, an older sure. white guy. Um, 
And so I wasn't surprised, but I wasn't discouraged. And it was then that I, I, I chanced upon this pirated version of the audible ratio. And I contacted Scribner and I, and I got some woman in the rights department and she said, well, let's take it down. And she got it taken down. And then she said, and then I said, well, gosh, if somebody thinks they can make money out of off it, maybe we should do an audible version of, of ratio. And she said, that would be great. Do you have anything to tie into it? Um, and I said, I, in fact, I, I do have something. Um, and it's a, it's actually a cocktail book based on ratios. Would you have a look? I, I'd love to send it to Scribner, but I'm not sure who I should send it to because I haven't worked with Scribner in more than 10 years. And she said, well, I'm the executive editor. You should send it to me. <laughs> and I felt so embarrassed because I hadn't even Googled her. I thought she was just in the rights department. And sure. Um, and she, she took the proposal and I didn't have an agent at the time. I was between agents. Um, so I sold that book to Scribbler on my own. And it's been at the same time, I got a call from or I got an email from a PR firm in LA saying, would you like to see some watercolors by this illustrator that we're not representing? I said, sure, why not? And what they sent was um, a, a kitchen towel with a cornucopia of fruits and vegetables on it and uh, a nine by 12 watercolor picture of an old fashioned, a cocktail. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my God, this is beautiful. I love this. And I immediately wrote to Kara and said, would you be interested in, instead of, instead of photographs for this book and photograph, they just, they're dull after a while. Yep. Would you be interested in an all watercolor and illustrated uh, cocktail book? Could we do this all illustrated, no photography? And she said, I love the idea. And so that's how this whole book came about. So, so one, I love the way the book is laid out, but I have to say that um, even when, for a lot of cocktail photos, even when they try to not look overly sexed up, it just feels so, you know, I don't, I don't want a cocktail handed to me that looks like droopy and lazy, but at the same time, I feel like for people who are, if this book is for people at home, you know, so many of these photographs are just like, I dare you to make it look anything like this. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And and so with the illustrations, I feel like that gives you a little bit of like it's elegant, but also, you know, it's it's abstract at the same time too. That's a really good point. Uh, I hadn't I hadn't thought consciously about it, but I think you're exactly right. The the photography in in most cocktail books is every drink is like on the red carpet. It's like they're dressed up to the nines, and they are getting their photo taken on the red carpet before the Oscars. And that does put, and I, it's what's bothered me about a lot of um, food photography, especially in magazines, is that it's so beautiful, it makes people feel like failures when theirs isn't beautiful. So yep. that is another good benefit of having illustrated cocktails. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I would love to dive into, and we can get at the book as other ways, but believe it or not, this is the first time I've had someone on the show who's written a whole book about eggs. Uh, and uh, so- and and I love that you take license to say, because I say this when I'm teaching all the time too, like, listen, I don't care if this daiquiri doesn't call for an egg white, you can put it in there and try it if you want. Mm. And so when you have a sour or these daisy style drinks, why not give it a try? It, you know, so 
what is it about the egg itself, you know, knowing so much about it, what is it that makes the egg white or the egg such a great complement to the cocktail? Why does it, why does it, why does it do so well in there in the first place? Well, because you can have one in the afternoon and call it a protein shake. <laughs> um, what, what an egg white does in a cocktail is it adds a visual appeal in the form of froth. Um, and it adds, most importantly, body. Um, you know, most red cocktails are thin. Even if they're a margarita or, or, a, or a cocktail with a liqueur in it or something heavy, um, it gives it um, that awful term, which we can never find a, a replacement for, mouthfeel. Um, it feels better on the palate. It spreads it out more. Um, and there is some nutrition in it. Egg whites are protein. And um, they just they just add so much. And in fact, God, you're saying this now makes me want to go make a margarita with um, an egg white uh, to see if I'm right. I mean, I just posited the idea in the book, but I've never actually made a margarita with an egg white because you just don't do that. But why not? I can't remember if it's an article from the Wondrich era at Esquire or just after David left uh, to someone you know very well from this book, uh, but they have uh, in one of their like winter cocktail list rundowns, they have a, a mezcal marg that they have egg white in. Oh, really? Uh huh. Oh, yeah. So, so if so you would, it works. <laughs> yeah. So if you type in like winch, wintry cocktails Esquire, it will pop up as as their recipe. I don't remember if it's David's or not, but it then was probably whoever the drinks editor was following David. I will do that. I love, I prefer a mezcal margarita. Mm -hmm. uh, something that I haven't really done as much that I like that you called out, obviously since this book was born so much of the Friday cocktail hour, and even if you were doing it on Instagram, it was often people were coming over not too long after that at some point to to batch them. When we are making an egg white cocktail, whiskey sour, for easy example, and mm -hmm. we're dropping an immersion blender in there or whatnot, is there, you know, egg, obviously you can pull it out of the fridge. It's not going to be bad in five minutes, but do you have any thoughts on like, once you're batching a whiskey sour, uh, you know, you could always do it 20 minutes before people come over, but do you, if you were preparing for guests to come over and you were going to batch a whiskey sour with an immersion blender. So you'd in your Pyrex, I think, as you say, your large scale Pyrex, you'd add your, your whiskey, your lemon, your simple syrup, your egg white, hit it with the immersion blender, uh, and then drop ice in there. Like, is there anything people should think about regarding batching a cocktail like this in terms of timing? Well, with eggs, eggs are a little funny. They'll, they'll change over time with the reacting to the spirit. Um, and so I, it's a kind of a cocktail I wouldn't batch um, and preserve right. the way you could a Negroni. You can right. you can batch Negronis and keep them in the fridge forever. Sure. Um, but the egg is going to change over time. It's eventually going to go bad. Um, it'll it'll separate. But I batch. But but for one evening, I mean, how and and a whiskey sour is one that I often batch when we're having two to six people. Um, two to four people over for cocktails um, because they're so appreciative. They're, I mean, they're really appreciative of it. They're, they're, I mean, I had one guy, an editor from, from uh, Vanity Fair came over and says, can I have another one? 
And I, I, he said, I never drink three cocktails, but they were so good and so surprising. So I like to do that for guests. Um, batching them ahead of time is fine. Um, the egg will not cook or separate. And you just give it a, another buzz of the hand blender and it will be good all night. Okay. I even I even took a batch to um, a friend's house for dinner. Um, I, and I put them in a ball jar. I mixed them, chilled them, put it in a ball jar and just shook it before I poured them at the house. So they traveled. Okay. But for the most part, you want to batch a cut. Sorry about that. For the most part, you want to batch cocktails that um, have just alcohols in them, not simple syrups, not liqueurs, not not stuff of different um, uh, viscosities. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I loved you talked about uh, and I was I was curious because you talked about for Anne's birthday and before I forget. Yeah. So I think like for an egg white cocktail. Uh, yeah, I was thinking more like people are coming over for dinner tonight, not like for the days and weeks ahead. Uh, but that's good to know in terms of not necessarily worrying about them keeping all night. Um, because yeah, like, you know, I was curious knowing that vermouth, you know, we're fortifying it when we put it in a cocktail, mm -hmm. um, but it does still have a shelf life. So, uh, cause you said that, like, I think in the book that that batch Negroni kept for months in your opinion, and it didn't really turn in a way you found noticeable. Four months, I was still serving it, and it was fine. Okay, you know, alcohol is a great preservative. That's why you can make, you know, eggnog and keep it on your pantry shelf for two or three years, and it grows more funky and interesting. But it's killed all the bacteria. It's pasteurized. Got it. Okay, so to that point, I batch uh, eggnog now during the holidays. Are you saying it's actually shelf stable outside of the refrigerator? I always keep it in the refrigerator. Uh, it is shelf stable outside the refrigerator. And according to, God, I think it was, um, I think Kenji, you know, Kenji. Uh -huh. um, I hope everybody knows Kenji. He's such a wonderful person and such a, a, an asset to the culinary world. Um, he, he, it's either him or somebody else did an experiment and found that after 30 days, all bacteria had been killed. They did an experiment with this. And so, yeah, I, I, a month before you're going to serve the eggnog. So at Thanksgiving time, we'll often make our eggnog and we usually save a, a you know, a ball jar full of it, keep it on the pantry shelf at room temperature. Uh, and I've, I've had, I've kept, I've been able to keep one as much as three years. Uh, so it's, you know, three years with cream and sugar and booze and seasonings. Um, it works, it works and it's healthy and safe, but, the, but I don't think three-year-old eggnog tastes as good as fresher eggnog. Sure. It's funky. It's depends on your taste, but it's fun to do. I will say as an aside, I feel like, and there are so many cocktails and like to the editor, the Vanity Fair editor, you know, it's like. I feel like a lot of some people don't identify as being cocktail people because they haven't been served. And clearly there are good cocktails in many places now. But like, yeah, like when, when you get good cocktails, people are suddenly just like, geez, these. But yeah, eggnog is another thing that I love showing people for the first time. Cause like they've often sometimes had like that grocery store, or whatever the heck, not. They usually only have that. Yeah. yeah. And they have good eggnog and they're like, 
what is this? It's it's so good. So good. So good. It's not this viscous, syrupy stuff that comes out of a carton. So we talked about uh, the Cocktail Codex. And so when I see your, your book a little bit, mm. I... Now, the Cocktail Codex is much more complex. I, I like to say, like, I feel like, you know, uh, Alex and David and that crew, while someone like me can own it, that's really written for a bartender. But they do identify these families in the Codex. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was curious about is, because I know that you certainly like your, you like your martini a little uh, stronger than I do. But I was curious, in the Codex, they kind of really loop in the Manhattan and the martini together you view them as as separate drinks. Talk to me about, is that just the ratio balance to you, Michael? Or tell me why you think about, and they don't have to be, I'm more curious why you why you separated them. Um, yeah, I disagree with the way they've organized their families. Um, it's a terrific book, Cocktail Codex by the Death and Company folks, um, where they identify families. And yeah, the martini is in the same family as the Manhattan for them because it's a spirit and vermouth drink. Um, my book differs in that I, I want to make simplify it. This is really a book for the for the home cocktail enthusiast. Yeah. Um, I want to simplify it for them. And a Manhattan is not anywhere near a martini, uh, flavor wise. Flavor, well, flavor wise, that's all we're talking about. I mean, they're both boozy. They're both, you know, have, have similarities. They both, yes, they both use vermouth. But I was looking at the Manhattan, um, which is a spirit and sweet vermouth. And that's a style of drink, whether it's a palmetto, which is a Manhattan made with rum or a, um, a tequila Manhattan or a Rob Roy. They're all, all the same basically what I wanted to create was a template for drinks in which you would swap out the spirit and it was called something else. And it was a whole different drink. Um, Codex does it in a little bit more esoteric way. Um, They have specific brands and types of alcohols. You know, it is for the professional bartender. In fact, I've never made, a cocktail from Cocktail Codex or Death and Company. Now, but I, now I, I kind of have to now. Now I'm going to branch out a little and move away from the classics and see what what's going on because I did have some great new cocktails in my sort of journey through this. You know, like so I have the last word in the in the book, um, which is a pre-prohibition era cocktail, and it's a it's it was resuscitated by a Seattle bartender um and put on the menu in the uh, 2000 aughts I imagine in Seattle and it was so good it took off and it's now a, a standard classic cocktail but the one to one to one ratio of gin lime juice chartreuse and luxardo um is solid so that Phil Ward in New York when he was opening his tequila bar um, oh no, after, no, I, this is probably when he was with at, at Death and Company. Phil Ward's one of the great bartenders and a quirky motherfucker, um, whom I <laughs> yeah. like very much. Um, he just, he, he swapped out the gin and put in overproof rye. And, um, his boss at the time, Audrey Saunders, 
of the Pegu Club, that's probably where it was, um, called it not the last word, but because his name was Phil Ward, W-A-R-D, oh. the final ward. Yep. Um, and it's a terrific cocktail. And then he made, when he was opening his um, tequila bar, he used the one-to-one-to-one -one -one ratio to create the division bell, which is tequila and Aperol and an Amaro and lime juice. Yeah, I think it's tequila, Aperol, Maraschino, and ours, ours, yeah, it doesn't matter either way. Yeah, but the division bell is great. I've definitely made it before. You've got it here in the book for sure. But mm -hmm. I I would agree with what I what I like about talking to people about the Martini and the Manhattan through the Death and Co. lens is seeing them as spirit and vermouth and like they are similar in that they call in the same style of ingredients, but I would agree that they they do not present as similar drinks at all in terms of taste and body. You know, to your point, the Distrito Federal, you know, the Palmetto, the Manhattan, you know, even the Boulevardier in a way, you know, it's kind of like they're at least presenting in a slightly more similar form. Um, right. But um, but yeah, the, the versus the martini is just going to be so, uh, such a departure, such a departure. So Right. So I, I, they, they don't belong in the same families. They're a different drink, and they're so much more fascinating that way. And uh, and you are right. I quickly checked um, the Division Bell is tequila, Aperol. That's the Amaro um, flavor, and Luxardo and lime juice. Yeah. It's a great drink. It is a great um, drink. And a, and a follow that and, you know, swap all those out for other spirits, and you have a paper plane, you know, um, with, with a very special type of, of Amaro. Um, you know, I just, I, I'm fascinated by four ingredient, one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one drinks. Yeah. They're complex and interesting and delicious. It's interesting where I think that the last word has more cachet, but the number of people that aren't super serious cocktail people that know the paper plane blows my mind sometimes. It is, yeah. it's amazing how often in terms of, you know, to Robert's whole world of the modern classic paper plane is just is it feels like a giant out there it's it's it feels like it's everywhere so um yeah, yeah that's what makes it a, a classic cocktail yeah in fact, there's another phil ward story um i think i write about this in the book but i interviewed him for the book he was in italy with a pal a year ago and they were looking for a bar and he says there are no bars in italy it's always a cafe you can't i just want to sit at a bar i like bars when I'm when I'm on vacation, I miss bartending. I'm I miss bartending when I'm away. I like bars, um, and so they at last found one, and they sat down and they both ordered a martini, and the guy next to him, an Italian cocktail nerd, ordered a division bell, and the guys then Phil's friend said, "Oh my God, he just ordered your drink." I, I, I got to tell him, and Phil said, "No, don't do that. Stop. Be quiet." <laughs> but that's when you know you've got a classic on your hand. No doubt. Yeah. And uh, I've not met Phil before. I hear he's a total character. And yet I remember an interview with a couple of the Death & Co. staff. And like, I think Phil just came out of the womb, a fully formed bartender. They're just like his <laughs> his pro like his prowess is just uncanny is what yeah. is, he's in a number of drinks, obviously referenced to. Um Something else was interesting. Obviously, the in so the Manhattan versus a Boulevardier. So, for the people out there that don't know those terms as readily, so we're talking about a whiskey of a uh, either a rye and a bourbon, you know, 
most of the time bourbon in uh, vermouth in a Boulevardier versus rye in, in vermouth in a Manhattan. But you talked about when we're making the jump to Boulevardier, we're adding Campari in there. You said in a Boulevardier, I feel like the, the whiskey you call is probably more important than in a Manhattan. And mm -hmm. I was curious if you'd expand on that a little bit. Not that I, uh, I'm more curious, like, what is it that makes it more important in one than the other? They're not the same drink, but I'm more curious why you feel that it, it, it matters more. Um, I, I think we'd have to go to a, a food scientist like Harold McGee or something like that to know why uh, this is true. But I, I, it's only because I've read in more than one source that upping the quality of the whiskey in Manhattan, which is two parts whiskey, one part sweet vermouth, upping uh, the quality of that bourbon doesn't markedly change the drink. It's going to be just as good with a mixtures as it is with a maker's. Um, whereas, and I, and I think that's just because the vermouth is a very powerful ingredient. It's, it was, it's what created, actually it was what created cocktails in America was the vermouth. Um, but I don't know if that whole, you know, maybe a Boulevardier, which is equal parts, whiskey, sweet vermouth and Campari. I'll bet because of the power, especially because of the powerful Campari in there. Uh, and the sweetness and herbaceousness of the vermouth, I'll bet that too does not require uh, a better uh, whiskey. On the other hand, if you're using, if you're making an old fashioned, still one of the most popular cocktails out there, which is just sugars, bit, sugar bitters, and uh, and whiskey, are America's foundational cocktail, arguably. Um, quality of the bourbon is going to matter. Quality of the rye is going to matter. Yes, yes. Yeah, and so I think... Um... I just think it was a fascinating point, and I need to look up who Harold McGee is for sure. But uh, well, you but do, I, you must. Immediately. I will. I will. I will. Right now, this interview's over. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think to me that's the thing that's interesting from my own line of thinking. But to educate people, like when does spirit quality matter versus hey, mm -hmm. when can you, you know, without buying garbage, when does you, when right. do you not need to break the bank on something? And I and speaking of that, I I did like that in the book. You know, you certainly talked, you know, that this book is for people that in theory don't have to like, you, you go out and buy the, the codex. And if you skim it carefully, you can find a recipe where you're like, oh, like all I need to do is buy a bottle of sherry. Okay. This doesn't get crazy versus, right. oh, this is an eight ingredient cocktail with a sous vide infusion. And you're like, okay, yeah, this is a little crazy, <laughs> but I liked in the book that you, I feel like called out for the most part, um, maraschino liqueur. You mm -hmm. called out, um, you called out chartreuse because it is incredible. Uh, and then I think you also talked about absinthe a little bit. I like this idea that I tell people outside of your spirits, you know, mm -hmm. I think I, I love vermouth. I, I'm a diehard advocate for it. Uh, you know, that a bottle of orange liqueur, uh, and to your point from there, maybe, a, uh, one of these more, slightly more esoteric liqueurs, mm -hmm. like don't go totally crazy at home unless it's really your thing. Cause otherwise you're going to, there's going to end up being dust on all of them. Yeah. You don't need the Benedictine. You don't need the elderflower liqueur. Or you don't need the creme de violette. Um, but these, the Maraschino liqueur, the most popular brand is Luxardo. Uh, Absinthe, which has been around forever and is now back. 
um, and Cointreau, those are really the three, um, Maraschino, Cointreau, um, we, oh, we Chartreuse. Chartreuse was the other one. Um, those are all really versatile. So if you are an enthusiast of, of cocktails, I do recommend sporging on those, but you don't need a ton of them. You definitely need an orange liqueur because um, that's fundamental in so many drinks. But when I made, because um, of Peter Meehan, who created the Hemingway deck, uh, the... Uh, the uh, Jim, yeah, Jim Meehan. Jim Meehan. So yeah. is that his brother, Peter? Is that his brother? Peter is his, yeah. Yeah. Is okay. his yeah. Um, when I tasted that and realized that it was exactly a Hemingway daiquiri with a little bit of absinthe in it and how different it was and yeah. how remarkable it was, I thought, oh my God, how fascinating. This is genius to just a little bit of this absinthe um, changes things. Um and I confirmed it when I made a white lady uh, and added a, and added some maraschino liqueur to it, just a, like a teaspoon of it. And it absolutely transformed the drink. So I'm, I'm just fascinated by the power of these liqueurs. And that's, again, that's part of cocktail history. That's how they often started. That's why we have the improved whiskey cocktail, which mm-hmm. is basically an old fashioned with some absinthe in it mm-hmm. and maybe some uh, Luxardo. You know, Michael, one of the things you said towards the beginning that I think about a lot is like, you know, the number of people out there that own, while Cointreau might not be the number one thing you want to sit around and just sip on its own, uh, that we need to, when we have these flavorful things in our cabinet, we should probably know what the the raw ingredient itself tastes like, even though they're maybe not meant to be drunk neat. Mm-hmm. You know, with your culinary and tasting background, when you started messing around with kind of the idea of adding a little bit of maraschino or absinthe to something, were there any signposts of a spirit or a style of drink? Was, was there a way that for somebody out there who's trying to guess, and I always like to say like the average cocktail costs a couple of bucks really to make it home so you can afford to mess it up. But mm-hmm. were there signposts that told you, oh, with this white lady cocktail, I'd rather add maraschino than absinthe. I guess I'm curious how you think about that. If you have any suggestions for people at all. Um, I, I, my, my suggestion would be to recognize that we have taste memory and taste imagination and that we can, if we're thoughtful, imagine how something tastes. Um, and we know that Luxardo is cherry flavored, well, Cointreau is um, orange flavored, and absinthe is almost medicinal in its flavor. Um, that's where your starting point is. And I, I remember this, I was, I was working with Thomas Keller at the French Laundry on his book, and he has this fascinating dish. It's a signature dish, it's called Oysters and Pearls. It's this weird, weird combination. It's tapioca, like vanilla tapioca pudding, um, on which there's a film of oyster liquid on top of which he puts um, a raw oyster and a dollop of caviar. So you've got tapioca, you've got these childhood pleasures of tapioca, comforting pleasures of tapioca. And then you've got this very adult, sophisticated caviar flavor, this very refined taste, taste that we uh, <clears throat> develop a taste for. 
mediated by this weird sort of cartoonish oyster in between. <clears throat> and I just thought it was a fascinating dish. And I said, Thomas, uh, he, he asked me how I liked it. I said, it's astonishing. It's a fabulous dish. And I said, what do you think of it? He says, I don't know. I've never tasted it. And I said, what? And he said, well, you don't have to stick your hand in fire to know it's hot. And that's when I started thinking about taste memory, taste imagination. Um, and so we can develop this and we get better and better at it by imagining what something's going to taste like. And we do this when we're cooking all the time. Imagine what it's going to taste like and then taste it. And how, how, how does it match up to what was in your imagination? And then you learn from that. Yeah. You know, it, so what that triggers for me is one, my friend and mentor who is almost 10 years younger than me, uh, you know, when I, I remember showing him like specs early on for various drinks and he'd be like, he'd look at him like, okay, yeah, I could see how that would work. You know, this idea that he, and I think part of that for people again at home is this idea of like taste lemon juice often, you know, like what does that taste like? How does that, you know, tasting your simple syrup, like, so you can begin to think about what might these flavors be like when they mesh together. And so I like the answer that like, I have felt my receptors starting to kick in a little bit when I want to doctor a drink where it's like, okay, I've played in the sandbox enough now that now I think I begin to understand how some of these things are going to play together here. So that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just a matter of thinking and and I mean and and being curious and remembering like how does lemon juice differ from lime? What's the difference there? Why do we use lime and sometimes lemon? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I like lime and a whiskey sour rather than lemon. You you suggest lemon. They're they're both whiskey sours, right? Um, you as the more you taste, the more um, the more you taste, the more attuned you become to nuance and the nuances of flavor. And you teach yourself, which is what you've been doing for years now and what I've been doing and what everybody who cares about food and drink and cooking and creating what we think about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are there uh drink muses or ingredients you have at the moment you've been playing with more like, I've, and you know, we don't have to be having cocktails all the time, but are there things that you've been messing around with at all recently? Um, no, I haven't. It's been busy, so I haven't. I, a friend gave me a bottle of a cardamom amaro. Okay, and that's been interesting. And you can you can swap out the sweet vermouth in a Manhattan, and you've got something closer to a uh, closer to a little Italy that um, from Audrey Saunders classic. Um, I I I will play with the Luxardo. Um, a friend left as a, a friend stayed at our apartment and left us a bottle of $70 chartreuse. So I've been doing some chartreuse cocktails. Um, so yes, I will definitely play. Uh, but for the most part, you know, I'm a martini guy. At the end of the day, I'm going to mix a martini. It's going to be a six to one martini in a frozen glass. It's going to be a three ounce martini uh, with a half ounce of vermouth. Uh, a dash of orange bitters and a twist where I can actually see the oil hitting the surface of the martini. Um, I add a half ounce of water because I, because I want it quick and I keep the beef eater gin in the freezer. Uh, 
Um, and I know bartenders shake their head at this, but it's faster and easier and it's colder. Frankly, I've, I've, I've made, when I haven't had the gin in the freezer, I've made a stirred martini. It's not cold enough for me. I love that a martini is a drink that has to be ice cold, absolutely ice cold. Uh, and then it's a great drink with the orange bitters, lemon oil, and a twist, and a decent vermouth at yep. six to one. I really like. Yeah. And my but wife will have Manhattan. Again, another simple drink, quickly made, two to one, bourbon, vermouth, and chocolate bitters from uh, Bitterman's, which we love in Manhattan. So, and ask any bartender, what do you have at home? They're going to say, I have a martini or Manhattan or a Negroni. Yep. They have the simple drinks. Yeah. No, I mean, I pretty much drink Negronis and daiquiris at home when I, you know, as my kind of go-tos here. So uh, I hear that. Yeah. It's just every once in a while, I'm like, it's also like probably different stages of, of the game where like you have things you're kind of like temporarily messing around with or whatnot. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I've posted about this cause I feel I like it a lot, but lustau has got their vermouths on the market are real good, real good. Their, their Blanco vermouth is fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough. So which, which brand, uh, Lustau, they're the Spanish sherry company. Oh. So Spain has some good stuff like that. Spain has good vermouths, good cherries. Yeah. Yeah. So Lustau's Blanco in particular, if you've got the right liquor store, obviously in New York, you've got everything. Uh, but so look up Lustau's uh, Blanco is just fantastic. How do you pronounce, how do you spell that? Lustau's? Yeah. L-U-S-T-A-U. Just, okay. Yep. Good. I will. Yeah. We have the remarkable Aster Wines here, not far from my apartment so i know they will have it you know i obviously you know can't recommend enough to people who are looking to kind of dig deeper into ratios uh to to try the book because i feel like it again will help you better the key to cocktails i think is to be able to think about them well so they don't feel like work when that when it feels like this substitution you understand oh we're to your point the martini and the Manhattan, they are not alike. And so in terms of flavor versus when we have kind of all these Palmettos and Manhattans, we're learning to think about what's a drink going to roughly be like when I have it. Are there other aha moments you feel like uh, you had when writing the book or, or researching it that that are top of mind you've, you've wanted to talk about that I haven't asked about so far? Not that I can put my finger on because, I mean, there, there are so many of them and they happen all the time. And, you know, the act of writing actually brings them about the act of, you know, I'll be writing something. And I thought, hey, this is an idea. Let me go mix this up um, and, and give it a taste. Uh, but th that's just all a process of writing a book. You know, I write a book because because I don't not because I know something, because I don't know something. You know, I write a book to explore an idea. And that's what makes writing fun and interesting and keeps me from being bored. Um, and that's what I did with the cocktail, uh, the book of cocktail ratios. Um, I wanted to explore, I wanted to see if I could gather, if this really worked, does it, you know, does this initial notion that, that um, because a Negroni is just a boulevardier using gin rather than whiskey. How many other drinks were like that? So that yeah. was the, was for the book. Um, 
And I'm sure there are smaller revelations along, along the way um, that have just been absorbed into my being and are no longer surprising because I've, I've recognized them and confirmed them. Um, that's something for me to think about. I don't know. If I think of something, I'll let you know. That's all right. It was it was probably a big question anyways. Uh, I, I am curious because you cited in the book so many times the uh, Oxford Companion book from David Wondrich. I have a copy upstairs. You know, the research in undertaking a book is obviously pretty monstrous. Uh, did you read that book cover to cover? Or like every time someone gave it to me and it, I, I flipped through it a couple of times, but it's just like every time I look at it, I just go, God, that's just it's, it's intimidating. No, you, you don't read a book like that cover to cover. Um, that's a reference book. You go to it for specific reasons. When I want to know about the history of Negroni, that was the first place I went. Um it's just he's he's just so damn good, David. Yep. He's so knowledgeable. You know, he he brings both an acad academicians, uh, uh, an acad an academics, um, research ethos and intelligence, along with uh, you know, kind of just a, a hippie smoker sticking his lucky strike in his in his. In his, in his guitar fret and continuing to jam and play so he's he's just such an interesting character and he's so smart and he's so good at what he does and i would this book came out right when i was writing this it was just like a godsend as far as background on certain drinks i could just look up okay who was who was the guy who brought back the last word what was his name stenson okay here it is yeah mm -hmm. No, you're right. And that, and that is how I've used it so far. And so I figured that's it. It's just, uh, I, I remember, I forget who it was who talked about. They were like, I think it was Robert Simonson. He was like, I heard about it. And then I didn't hear anything about it. And then I heard about it and then I didn't hear anything about it. And at some point you just assume, I guess this isn't happening. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's a, well, it's a, it's such a monumental work. It's a tome. Um, it is it is a tome and well worth it if you're in, in in the business or curious about it or just want to know about different rums or you know what's you know what's in a via carré cocktail that kind of thing you know there's recipes there's stories it's it's an extraordinary accomplishment you probably say this in the book but since i'm getting ready to go shoot a video on it i might as well ask uh so for a gimlet for you are you partial to fresh juice or to cordial? I feel like I remember the answer, but don't, I'm not sure. Do you, so, so what's your preference? Um, my preference is for a fresh uh, lime juice, which is ju just be lime juice and simple syrup and gin. Um, I have made Robert Mor Morgenthaler's uh, cordial, which is outstanding. Um, I gave it to my wife and she said, oh, it's too sharp. It was too sharp for her. So it's very sharp, but that's what some people, that's what a lot of people want in a gimlet, which back when Rose's lime juice was the main half the half the ingredients in, in it, um, when that was still good, it was very sharp and very sweet. Um, so that is traditionally what the drink would have been at its inception. But right now, I think a classic lime sour, it's a daiquiri made with gin rather than rum. Yep, yep. Yeah, I'm. I mainly, like I said, look at it as a preservation technique rather than having to throw a bunch of limes out. So I Absolutely. hear that. Yeah, I save all my. You know, I because I have um, a martini most not every night, but most nights um, after work. We're in. 
Um, and so I'll have a lot of lemons with no with no peel on them. Um, and so I will juice them and save them for when we make a sour. So yeah. um, I do do that. And I, I don't know why I said that, but because it, you made me think of preserving and 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 whatnot. But I'm very frugal, which is why I don't want people to go out and buy $130 bottle of something that they're only going to use once. Um, and I would urge them to save their lemon juice, which keeps for a long time, especially if there's sugar in it. Um, I, you know, things like interesting bartenders tend to use a two to one simple syrup. I think that's not practical for the home because it's too, too viscous. It doesn't measure well. Um, but it keeps longer and it's more efficient when you're in a bartender situation, you know, when you're at a, when you're in a bar. So there's all kinds of little things like that, that you learn. Uh, Last thing for me, uh, something you can try <clears throat> that I read and I find you works quite well. I drop a little bit of a uh, lactic acid in my simple syrups. And uh, this was something that uh, a couple bartenders kind of wrote about that they feel like that created more of that uh, creamy mouthfeel in a one-to-one -one simple syrup just to kind of add a little bit more tang and a little bit more viscosity to it. So, so lactic acid, not ascorbic acid. Yep. So I do lactic acid. Yeah. What's the, what form is the lactic acid coming? Good question. You can buy powdered. I happen to have a liquid. And so I'll just add, you know, if I'm making a, a decent size, you know, you know, three quarters of a cup sugar and water, simple syrup, I'll do a little, uh, eighth or quarter of a teaspoon, probably like probably around an eighth of a teaspoon in there. And I just can just taste the difference in there. So I have, uh, I have a, I have a, go ahead. That's new to me, and I find it really interesting. And I want to know how it affects the drink uh, compared, to, say, a daiquiri made with your simple syrup versus traditional simple syrup. Mm -hmm. I will. Sorry to everybody listening at home, uh, but I'll send this to you right now, Michael. Here's a um, uh, article from Punch, and I'll link out to it in the show notes. How about that? Uh, here's a Punch article that's got... Um, uh, talks about lactic acid right there. So oh, okay, great. Yeah. Thank you. Again, that's new to me. Um, in this world, in the culinary world, you're always learning, always, always learning, um, and that's what makes it so fun and interesting. So uh, this this should be coming out right around the time of the book comes out. But uh, I I'm sure so. I, 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 that's right. I'm, I'm sure it's available everywhere. But but uh, tell us your website. Where should people be following you and your your work? Um, the book is called The Book of Cocktail Ratios, The Surprising Simplicity of Our Classic Cocktails. Um, you can get it wherever books are sold, Amazon, indie bookstores. Um, my site is rulman.com, R-U-H-L-M-A-N.com. I have a Substack newsletter, and I usually have a cocktail on that newsletter. It's uh, just Roman uh, roman.substack.com. Uh, it's free. Uh, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy hearing from people. So those are places to reach me, find out more about my books uh, and my work, and to contact me. Um, you know, in this age, in this unusual age that we live in, I've, I've really enjoyed connecting with people such as yourself and connecting with readers. Uh, only connect as Ian Forrester commanded. <laughs> Thanks for this, Michael. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Been fun for me too. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. 
The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktailing.